Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Security Insider podcast. And our guest today is Neil Fergus. Neil is the Chief Executive Officer of Intelligent Risks. He has had a long and storied background in the security industry, looking after numerous Olympic Games, Commonwealth Games, FIFA World Cups, and all sorts of other events. Neil, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, John. Pleasure to be here. So, Neil, for those people in the industry who aren't familiar with your work or your background, can you tell us a little bit about your background? How did you end up in security and what were you doing prior to that? Um, well, being, being someone who's probably in the latter part of their career, it started a long time ago. I um, had deferred university and actually worked in the mining industry for a couple of years, but um, then joined the Commonwealth Government um, and uh, did two degrees part-time and ended up in the diplomatic service and with some postings overseas, uh, mainly in the regional security sphere um, and eventually um, as a senior security diplomat in Europe um, for a four-year period and then returned to Australia and I was put in charge of um, the Middle East and Africa branch, which I was very, very happy to be doing. But in a matter of some uh, several months, I was uh, spoken to by my seniors who told me I was moving to Sydney because there was a um, greater level of commitment required by the federal government in planning the Sydney 2000 Olympics. So in late 97, I upped stumps from Canberra, came to Sydney, working with... Um, the great, talented, uh, then Assistant Commissioner Paul McKinnon, who pulled together that security operation for those Olympics and Paralympics. Uh, and we had a three-year ride, as I like to say, in the trenches with McKinnon. was never dull. Um, but after that, I, I left government service and with a couple of colleagues, we established this company, Intelligent Risks, or, or IR for short. So when you're talking about things like an Olympic Games or a Commonwealth Games or a FIFA World Cup, what does your involvement typically look like? I believe at the moment you're working on what was going to be this year's uh, Olympic Games, which is now next year's Olympic Games in Tokyo, Japan. Yes, John. It's, um, <laughs> well, as you and your listeners would appreciate, nobody had anticipated the COVID-19 world that we're currently uh, moving in and... This has had a dramatic impact on the international sports event schedule and, and political summits. Yeah. I mean, I did some preparatory work on a Chogham scheduled to happen in Kigali in Rwanda. Um, it's just not a viable proposition at the, at the moment, the same as the IOC and the Tokog Organising Committee in Japan decided that the Olympic Games that were supposed to commence in July 2020 could not go ahead and they've been put back one year. And of course, there is no guarantee that the COVID-19 crisis will be over July 2021, or, or indeed that there will be a vaccine. Um, so the planning at the moment that the Japanese and Tokyo Metropolitan Government and Organising Committee officials are doing is very, very carefully being structured to enable the athletes to come and participate and, and compete in, in a COVID risk environment. And that means there will be uh, considerations given to uh, appropriate levels of quarantining 
by teams either prior to departure from their home country or upon arrival in Japan. It means that there will be um, social distancing in all aspects of the game's delivery, which clearly will impact spectator capacities as well. But uh, there is the time to make sure that this is done right, and there is absolutely the commitment by the senior stakeholders, and, and I should add, uh, we have a very Australian dimension to that because our very own John Coates is a vice president of the International Olympic Committee, uh, Australia's most senior and experienced sports administrator, and he chairs um, the Tokyo 2020-21 Coordination Commission. Okay. Engage the Japanese authorities in these planning um, discussions. So when presenting something like a bid for an Olympic Games, how much of a role does security play in the overall process for, you know, why we should be awarded an Olympics? Well, it is a very important aspect, but it's important that the tail doesn't wag the dog. It's about the sport, it's about the culture, it's about um, social advancement and giving, yeah, well, not always young, but anyway, young men and women predominantly, yeah. an opportunity to excel as an elite athlete, to test themselves against the best in the world. And, and we never want to lose sight of that. We certainly don't want security to, as I've seen happen in the past, interrupt the spectacle. When we've, um, and I won't say where or when, but, you know, internationally protected persons come in. This is not the time or place to have a 20-car security motorcade in an Olympic city where uh, transport success can sometimes hang by, uh, you know, the the skin of its teeth to make sure everything works uh, at the right time and in a way, firstly, of course, it enables athletes to get to and from village venues, etc., in a comfortable and timely manner, but, but also the spectators and officials. Yeah. Um, so we would say, look, I'll give you one example as well, John. We had a Commonwealth Games in Delhi at a time when there was a really heightened terrorism risk. There had been a number of improvised explosive devices detonated across the city as some groups were determined to not only attack Indian institutions and, and, and the citizenry, but also to stop those games happening. And one of the most devastating one of those attacks was on a, on a public market where average mums, dads and children were, were out buying produce. Yeah. So the issue of locking down a number of elements of those games so that there was a safe environment was of paramount importance to everyone, firstly the Indian government. But we also had to make sure it worked. So, for example, they banned all motorcades. Okay. For the opening and closing ceremony, all heads of um, government assembled at some key points and were collectively put in buses. And when I say that, I'm talking about a dozen prime ministers all, all, all having a jolly ride along to the uh, the main stadium, the Indira Gandhi Stadium, in a shared bus environment. Um, and, you know, there is no room for close personal protection uh, principal protection officers to sit with their principals in the main stadium at that ceremony, which is an unusual development for, uh, of itself because they all travel with a 
a PPO, but there's a space made available back of house where they can sit and watch it on TV and have a cup of tea or coffee and rejoin their principles, the, the people they're protecting, as and when they're preparing to depart. Yeah. So these are things that are done very differently. The, the other thing, more, more, I suppose, in terms of government security rather than the private security industry, but nonetheless of some interest, is when you have, as Sydney 2000 had, I think, 38 heads of state visit, uh, sorry, heads of government visit over the course of the Games, but most of them come for the opening ceremony. I think that was about 27. Um, the protocol normally is that they call on the head of state, which is in the Australian context, the Governor-General as the Queen's representative. But we, we actually postpone, or suspend, I should say, the guest of government program. Right. Otherwise, the Governor-General and our Prime Minister would spend days going through the protocol of the meet and greets for all these people. Yeah. So they don't come under a heads of state program. They come as the guests of their respective National Olympic Committees. It all sounds extremely complicated and involved, and it's it's not the kind of thing that most security consultants or organisations would traditionally deal with. How does one begin to learn about this process? And, and, you know, I mean, I imagine you're getting most of this work now because you're one of the very few people in the world who can actually do this kind of work. Yeah, but, um, look, we, we do. We get a lot of repeat work, but... In a lot of countries, they, there's a natural preference, if they can, to engage local entities. Um, and and there are lessons that can be learnt relatively easy for people to get a toe into this water. Now, for example, um, the Melbourne Commonwealth Games, a long time ago now, 2006, but it was a pretty successful operation. But, of course, um, there, there was some controversy afterwards about the management and delivery of the private security services. The reality is each of the companies that was involved in that learnt quite a bit about, well, I will call it a, a mega event, yep. um, as opposed to doing it, not that it doesn't have its own complexities, a concert or, or an individual sporting event. But something over 12 days of that nature is very challenging. So it was done reasonably well in Melbourne. And some of those lessons go on to the next games and then the next games. It becomes key. We had a number of issues at Gold Coast 2018 Commonwealth Games which were, frankly, avoidable. Okay. You may recall the headline that, that ensued. Um, the, the failure of some of the companies to have people turn up and do the shifts or have sufficient numbers to deliver the shifts required. And in the event, some people got flown in from New Zealand to augment those numbers. Yep. We should have been cognizant of what's happened in the past because we could have avoided all of that. London 2012 was a cataclysmic security guarding failure which required a meeting of uh, the Cabinet Briefing Office chaired by the Prime Minister to make a decision that the British Ministry of Defence would step in and provide the guarding and screening at most of the venues. Why was that the case? Uh, because they went to a single source, right. single guarding company. 
Yep. And uh, the expectation at one point was that they would deliver 21,000 private security guards. I won't get into how many shifts. Yep. Uh, and in terms of our work, I spoke to people involved. Their training personnel said, oh, we're going to struggle to get the numbers. I said, well, what have you got? Oh, we'll have about 3,500. I said, no, no, there's a mistake here. He said, well, yeah, we've got to get 8,000. I said, no. Your, your salespeople are talking up 21,000. So it became apparent a couple of months out that the train crash was occurring in slow motion. Now, the London 2012 Olympic Games is remembered as an extraordinarily successful Games. But I can assure you, the Crisis Management Committee met on one subject only and three or four times it was about the private security guarding failure. Yeah. The United Kingdom learnt from that. And two years later, when they had the Glasgow 2014 Commonwealth Games, it was a textbook perfect private security operation because they contracted, I may be wrong, five, six, five, six or seven companies yeah. to ameliorate the risk of any company failing in its obligations. And that in itself, I guess, brings up an interesting point around this whole issue that's going on with subcontracting at the moment. And, you know, we don't want to get too deep into the weeds on this one particular issue, but there is a there is a very big difference between subcontracting and multi-tier subcontracting. Um, and I think that's where some of this confusion seems to be coming from. I don't think anyone would argue that there's anything wrong with subcontracting. In fact, from your point of view, it would probably be the case that subcontracting is essential in order to make these large-scale events work. But it's more, Absolutely. A, yeah, it's more a case of when we've got this multi-level subcontracting where you've got, you know, the prime, then the secondary, and then goodness knows how many layers below that reporting to and each other. And then allegedly even ghosting going down. Yes, you're 100% right, John. Look, anybody who thinks that um, the guarding industry, not just in Australia, but, but anywhere... Um, in an OECD country isn't going to uh, involve contracting, is missing the point. No guarding company has these numbers of people sitting around idle waiting for uh, an 11-day event in terms of Commonwealth Games or a 14, 15-day event in terms of an Olympics. It doesn't happen. Their, their core guarding personnel are out doing other, other tasks, other projects, other yeah. contracts. So what we say in terms of these major events, and APEC Australia was oh, a long time ago, 2007 in Sydney. Same principles there. A um, little bit shorter, the period required was about nine days, but you, you need to do a capability and needs analysis on the industry in the locale yep. to understand what depth there is and what, what capacity might or might not be available. And I say might or might not deliberately because you will find in terms of the subcontracting regime that exists that a number of people are signed up with more than one company. So you don't want to do a quick head count and go, okay, well, what we've got is X amount of people available on the Gold Coast or in Sydney or in Melbourne. If you are double or even triple counting some of those people by accident, you, you need to know that you've got an appropriate number and then you can understand what your delta, what your gap might be um, and then start working out the solutions. 
And, of course, the other solution for any of these mega events these days is to ensure that there is an appropriate number of defence or MOD personnel to um, help alleviate some of the pressures. Uh, in the main, we don't want to see military personnel um, front of house, customer-facing. That's not the look of the games particularly. Um, I'm not saying it couldn't happen and it doesn't happen because it does, but uh, there are a whole number of roles they can do, and particularly in terms of logistics screening. All the material that goes into the village, which is a couple of pan techs a day in terms of consumables and laundry, needs to be screened. Um, doesn't mean the, uh, the army needs to do the physical screening of the athletes going in and out, or going in, I should say, um, but at a remote logistics screening facility, they have all of the skills and the equipment to um, deliver a very efficient and economic operation in terms of the material screening. And there are other roles that they can do. At the Gold Coast Commonwealth Games, the military took on responsibility for all screening going into the International Broadcast Centre because that particular facility at any um, of these mega events uh, is, well, the, the Gold Coast International Broadcast Centre for the period it was standing up and operating was the biggest um, media broadcast production facility in Australia. Yeah. Several, several thousand personnel and not just your front of camera talent but all the technicians and, all, of course, again, all the equipment that goes in and out multiple times during a day as crews head out to do some location shoots and then back in. Um, so it lends itself perfectly for an MOD or ADF operation. And so, you know, having been involved with these sorts of events since probably, well, since 2000 now, so we're, we're coming on to two decades, what are some of the biggest changes you've seen in the way that security is conducted through these things? Is it technological? Is it physical? Is it a combination of both? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, look, I think there's no, no substitute for the appropriately trained personnel and private security personnel that are going to continue to be required. We've gone for some state-of-the-art um, technological solutions at different games, and some of them have been excellent and are now part of the, the, the regular menu of game security operations. But the other point, going right back when I did first start in this area is um, an Olympic Games or a Commonwealth Games, FIFA World Cup or Chogham Heads of Conference meeting is not the venue to road test new technology. Yeah. Uh, and there's always an aspiring entrepreneur who says, you know, I've got the, the new best car with tyres, etc. That's fine. You need to know that um, the technology systems um, equipment has been proven in a robust working environment. So again, I can recall one Olympics that, um, wow, 200 million pounds was spent on a um, electronic system around the Olympic Park, which included a dozen venues. It was 15 kilometers perimeter, um, or close enough to it. And when it got to games time, another number of those sectors failed. Yeah. Uh, and, and it proved for me 
the enduring problems with PID systems, passive intruder detection systems. If people lean on a cyclone fence and it activates, or, or, or cat, animal, fox, badger, whatever, is activating the system, you start to get so many false alarms that you end up disabling the sector. Yeah. So I think in terms of recent developments, PIDs is passe. Not to say that PIDs isn't a very good and effective technology in other circumstances, but not on long external boundaries uh, subject to, um, well, uncontrolled movements on one side. Again, pe- people rattling the fence. Yep. Um, etc. etc. So we are, I suppose, at a point where we are also um, striving always to make sure that there is risk management applied. These events will become unaffordable for cities and states and communities if people keep working on a security model which is worst case scenario predicated. And I'm afraid the amount of conversations I've had with people, good people, earnest people, talking about, you know, there's a high risk of biological attack. And I'm sorry? Based on what data? On what intelligence reporting? Okay. Uh, a Novichok attack in Salisbury against a, a Russian military? No, no, no. Sorry. We need some concrete intelligence to determine likelihood, probability. And the, the issue for anybody putting the, in these events is to take an appropriate posture to manage credible risk, not incredible risk. So, um, yeah. So otherwise, the whole yeah. thing becomes unsustainable. Yep. So how much of your time in the planning and preparation of these events or your organisation's time is spent focusing on you know, determining and assessing and evaluating risks as opposed to how are we simply going to move people in and out from this location to that location? Hmm. Um, it really doesn't become um, an excessive amount of time at all. Um, each of the cities, for example, that host the Commonwealth Games are obliged to provide the CGF with a strategic risk assessment on award, or shortly after they're awarded the games, and then provide an update each year. And there is an expectation that they will um, draw on information from the competent government authorities. So if you're talking about Australia, uh, say we're going to have a, uh, we may have a Commonwealth Games in Adelaide in 2026, remains to be seen. Yep. That, that assessment would come from the organising committee, but we would be expecting that they have got um data from the competent authorities, which is ASIO, the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation, specifically on terrorism risk, yep. and from SPAPOL, South Australian Police, specifically on um, cr- criminal, general crime, fraud-related risks, etc. Yep. And it should not consume a lot of resources. The first one of these beasts may do, because it's a slight departure from, for example, what SAPOL might normally do, but thereafter, it's uh, it's not onerous to try to keep it updated and a risk register, which can be part, which should be part of the organisation's enterprise-wide risk management system. So 
the board of the organising committee would get that on whenever they meet, quarterly or monthly, and they can look at the risks of communication failures, industrial relations accidents, environmental accidents, security accidents. They want to, they want to see them all painted out and have confidence that the organising committee is working with the appropriate partners to mitigate them. Yep. But, you know, this becomes an incredibly important planning tool to inform capital and resource investment decisions. Yep. So when somebody says to me, okay, we want to put walk-through metal detectors at every venue for a Commonwealth Games, my immediate response would be, I can't see that happening. What What is the risk that's, that's predicated on? This isn't an Olympic Games. So if you're talking about the lawn bowls, walk-through metal detectors? Yeah. Why? Yep. Um, but, of course, you need a private security operation for... Um, well, in old-fashioned terms, it's ticket rip and pat-down, but maybe not even for the pat-down. Yeah. Um, might be random but targeted checks of individuals. Okay. Um, so All of that comes back to the risk assessment. We, in terms of the Commonwealth Games, all we say is there must be 100% screening of the village. It must be. Yep. And there must be 100% screening of the opening and closing ceremony where the head of state, the prime minister of the host country and countless other prime ministers and our patron in chief representing Her Majesty the Queen, they'll all be in attendance and we certainly need to know that's locked down. So if we get a credible um, threat called through, nobody's going to feel the need to evacuate because we've got confidence that that place has been searched, locked down and everybody in there's been checked. Sure. Because the last thing we'd want to see, John, yep. you can imagine that the athletes walking around the um, around the stadium carrying the flags, if uh, all of a sudden we've got to get everyone out. It's not only deeply embarrassing for the host city and host country and doesn't do much for the broadcast figures, but it presents another security risk of itself to try to get all those people safely out in those circumstances. Yep. But there's a lot more people in that stadium there for an opening ceremony than will ever be there for any other event. Yep. Um, because we're occupying the field of play with entertainers, children's choirs, um, 8,000 athletes from the 72 nations, anyway, and so on and so on. Yep. Neil, thanks again for your time, and uh, it's been have, great having a chat to you. Pleasure, John. Thank Always you. Always a pleasure. Keep well. You too. And ladies and gentlemen, don't forget, if you've enjoyed this podcast, there are plenty more like this one in the ASIAL Security Insider series. You can find them on uh, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Blurberry, uh, the Google Play Store, and all the other great places that you can find amazing podcasts. And we look forward to catching you on the next episode. Have a great day.